90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing good. Wrapping up writing my intro or my uh, entry for the Encyclopedia of Geology, second edition. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, so if you're just wrapping up the intro, I might have to step it up a little bit. Yeah, sorry. No, no. Wrapping up the entry. We're going to be wrapping up <laughs> the intro here in a minute is what I am what I was thinking ahead to. <laughs> ah, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's fun. That's a pub. Yay. <laughs> awesome. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, that's exciting. I'm, man, I'm telling you, I don't know how many Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes you taught because no one ever teaches Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but I chose to do that this semester. So I have two Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes, and it's a lot. It feels like I never leave that classroom. Yeah, so I did a Wednesday once a week class, and then I did Tuesday, Thursday classes the Mm -hmm. rest of the time. That's what everybody does. Yep. (laughs) Um, it's so easy to fill 50 minutes, right? Yeah. By the time you get started, by the time you do the review and Uh answer any questions, Uh yeah, you've got about 15 minutes left for you. Yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. If you have a quiz in there, it definitely throws everything out of here. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So that, that's, uh, it's going to be a challenging semester for you, I think. I think so. Um, I, every year or every time I'm like, I'm going to try this. And I'm like, I'm never going to do this again. So I just need to like keep writing that down. Like, maybe you shouldn't do this again to remind myself. Right. <laughs> if I even make it through the semester. But um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Right What's before up? finals, you record a 45-second <laughs> video of yourself to your future self. Uh, you know, people say they do that. Maybe I should start doing that. You're like, no, Shannon. Future Shannon, you think this is a good idea? It's not. <laughs> well, I've heard one guy on another podcast say that he uses the voice memo app, like, regularly. hmm Daily, at least, to just be like, you know, oh, I was walking, and this thing, string of thoughts popped into my head, and so I'm going to just record it all on a voice memo and go back and pull out the important nuggets later, or maybe never. Yeah, I my friend Stacy, she's constantly she's like you should record this for yourself. I'm like that's feels weird, but I mean, I guess it's just like taking a note. But what am I going to do yep. with all these notebooks I have? <laughs> 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 uh, but en- enough about my time management problems. Um what have you been up to? <laughs> well, you know, I've actually been solving the problem of all the excess rain that we've been getting here. Okay, big hair dryers. No, so I put up a lightning instrument. <laughs> and uh, uh, and you wash your car, right? <laughs> well, so it it had uh, stormed. We mentioned that last week. And it stormed one more time after that. And then I said, well, I need to get this instrument out. So last weekend, I got the instrument out and live and recording. And there is zero precipitation in the foreseeable future forecast. <laughs> Oh, man, that's great. So I'm recording gigabytes of clear air data. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's like passive seismic, right? Maybe there's something you'll be able to, like, pull from it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. And I also fixed my my roll-up door where all the water came in during the last big storm. You know, we cut the concrete out and poured some new and Mm -hmm. did several hundred dollars worth of work on the door and... 
so that that definitely means it's not going to rain either yeah absolutely all right so that's what you need to do to summon the heat dome <laughs> right <laughs> oh that's awesome well i mean at least your air conditioner is working right it is it's having a little bit of trouble keeping up uh, right yeah. now yeah because heat dome <laughs> yeah heat dome and i started up uh some servers in <laughs> in my room where that where the thermostat is and if I shut that room up, it actually gets relatively hot in there. Wow. Wow. Okay. But I have an eight foot tall network rack in there that's actually getting sort of full. Oh my lord. Did you just like vibrate at that frequency all day though? Just listening to that hum. You know, it, it's not in my office, but it's in my, my cleaner room. Oh, okay. And uh I was working in there all day today, and you just drown it out after about 15 minutes. Oh, okay. It just makes itself a part of you. <laughs> yep. Awesome. Well, that's So if great. there's ever, you know, a swarm of killer bees, I'll be the first to go because I won't <laughs> notice. Uh, 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 beautiful. <laughs> Arkansas killer bees, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, that's been uh, all the fun happenings around the shop, and uh, I'm actually using right now i just got a toy today that's a second screen for my laptop that's portable okay what do you mean by portable like imagine taking the screen off your laptop uh-huh. and just like ripping it off and that's what this is are you kidding me does it come with like a little stand is it foldable yeah so the stand folds out and then so it's meant for traveling so when i'm at home and i need a second screen or when I'm traveling and like teaching, I can have my instructor notes on one screen and then my main screen is what I'm projecting and showing to the students. So no more trying to juggle between my computer and the iPad and, Oh, I can't get to that from here because on this, no, now it's, I just have a little fold up screen that goes with me. How thin is this thing? I haven't stopped smiling. Mm. I am so excited about this. (laughs) Quarter of an inch. You're kidding it's got a built-in battery. Oh, my gosh. This is the coolest thing ever. (laughs) Yeah, so mine's called the Think Vision because it goes with my ThinkPad from Lenovo. Ah, And they they just released it, but it's not a new idea. Some other manufacturers have started doing this as well. Okay. Does it just plug in with, like, a USB-C or what? Yeah, one cable, one USB-C, and that's it. Power, video, everything. This is awesome. And it has like a little, like a music stand that comes with it is what I envision, right? Well, I mean, the back hinges out. Okay. It's sort of like the surface. Oh, okay. How the surface stood up, sort of, yeah. Gotcha. I mean, does it, can you adjust the height of it so it matches, you know, the height of your laptop screen or? Well... No, it doesn't have that adjustment, Mm -hmm. but those little folios that have the room service menus are about right. (laughs) Beautiful. That's all you need. Yep. (laughs) Oh, man. That's awesome. Okay. So I'm super excited because now what I've had to do in the past is like if I'm going to lay out circuit boards when I'm on the road, I have to print out a big pile of paper schematics because I need to see the schematic and the board. Right. Yeah. Uh, Or like make a pdf of the schematic and email it to myself and open it on my ipad (laughs) and now i just have this little second screen oh how big is it uh 14 inch okay so that's not insignificant no i mean my laptop's 15 so 
Man, that's awesome. Well, I know what I'm going to be doing after we're done, so let's get on with this. <laughs> yep, break out the uh, the Amazon Prime credit card. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about what to talk about this week, and you know, obviously there's big news with Hurricane Dorian. Yes, yeah. But we've talked about hurricanes. Mm-hmm, we sure have. Actually extensively. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I, I will put a little plug in for I did a Met Pie Monday this week, uh, so you can find it on YouTube, showing how to take shape files from the National Hurricane Center and sort of reproduce the NHC maps oh, in Python. Cool. That's cool. So that was fun. But um, yeah, so we were kind of thinking about what to do, and you suggested another meteorological phenomenon. Don't worry, I promise we're going to get back to geology. <laughs> uh, but we're kind of having fun with some of these meteorological phenomena right now. Right. And so we talked about, you know, air rising last week. I thought we talked about air falling this week in the form of downbursts. Yeah. And we get to talk about water loading again. Yeah. I figured you'd get real excited about that. I actually want to talk about radar signatures of this because this is what I used to do. Um, but yeah, first we need to talk about what are we talking about? Um, so <laughs> downburst is just what it sounds. Um, it's the air coming out of a thunderstorm instead of getting sucked up into it. And we'll discuss how that works here in a minute. But these things are, they can be pretty bad news. Like they're responsible for, like most plane accidents that are related to weather are related to downbursts and microbursts. Yeah, I mean, you can get low end tornado damage pretty easily with these. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I say downburst and microburst, it's the same thing. It's just a, matter of scale is the only difference here um but these little these little downdraft went well down little if you're talking about microbursts but these downdrafts yeah they they cause a significant amount of damage and how they form is kind of cool um and we definitely there's a lot of science that goes into trying to figure out when they're going to happen because they can be so damaging and they're kind of hard especially in the case of dry microbursts to predict yeah, and so when I TA'd the uh, intro meteorology class, I found out I had a bunch of aviation management people in that class. Oh, really? And so we went and pulled some old black box case studies, and we're watching uh, on these black box recordings, <laughs> you know, like altitude traces of airplanes that got hit by microbursts. No it kidding. was harrowing. Oh, that's not cool. <laughs> um, so my entire funding um, as an undergrad, and it would have been as a graduate student had I chosen to go this direction, uh, was from the Federal Aviation Administration because I worked on the uh, downburst algorithm for the 88Ds. Which is still in use. Yay, I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> At least as far as, I, I, I know I have seen it, I don't know how recently, but I've definitely seen that around. Hopefully it's improved, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so ironically enough at least i think ironically uh the key thing to make downburst or microburst is dry air yeah this is real weird <laughs> because all you talk about when you're talking about you know forecasting big storms or hurricanes or anything it's like how much moisture do you have enough moisture do you have enough moisture and yeah, it's the lack of moisture in a certain part of the storm or the stuff that happens when you evaporate that moisture that sort of drives this little 
little. I keep saying little because I worked on these little microbursts. So to me, it's a small thing, but they're not necessarily. Um, but drives the downburst itself. Yeah. So, I mean, sort of the idea is something called dry air entrainment, which means your storm gets to an area where instead of sucking in juicy, moist, energy-rich air, it, it starts intaking drier air. And that causes some of the moisture in the storm to evaporate, some of the liquid water to evaporate. Mm -hmm. And when evaporation occurs, things cool down. And so just like the opposite of last week, when you have stuff that heats up and it rises up to make a storm, this cooler air within this already formed storm wants to go down. And the more drier you get and the more evaporation and cooling the faster it wants to go down and then it gets scary. which makes it cooler <laughs> yes <laughs> and so it's a positive feedback loop um that creates these winds that can shoot down and you just said john like ef1 strength right so 100 miles an hour some of these downbursts are yeah and hey the, the peak wind speeds can be anywhere from a few seconds up to a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and l like we have CAPE for air that's convective available potential energy, how much energy is available to rapidly rise and convect, uh, we also have ways of measuring downburst mm -hmm. energy or not really negative cape because that's sin, which is different. That's convective inhibition. Right. I saw this, like, it's called, they call it NAPE in the, in the Wikipedia article, but I was going to ask you about that too because it's not quite the same thing. Right. So it's cape, but the inverse. Right. It's cape that forces things to accelerate down, whereas convective inhibition, negative cape, is something that stops convection from happening it stops those rising parcels it doesn't force parcels to accelerate down right yeah exactly yeah so nape i have never ever <laughs> ever calculated or seen nape in the wild <laughs> uh-huh what i have seen in the wild is decape right yeah uh, and I know there are lots of folks, including like Matt Bunkers, that's still doing active research on decape. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I just want to listen to you try to explain a skew T log P on the radio. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the the skew T log P is a very awesome diagram that shows atmospheric thermodynamic parameters. It's hard to explain when you're staring at it with somebody and it would be impossible to say, well, imagine you took a logarithmic y-axis graph and melted it over 45 degrees and then we're going to plot data on that. Yeah, exactly. And I bring up this graph because um, it's, I, I don't know the background of it. That probably sounds like a show that we should have though, because it's such a cool way, you know, you do all this math. And then you have all these visual learners. And it's such a cool way to, like, show math visually. You know, you're like, oh, I get what integrating this means, you know, because it shows you how 
dry air and moist air is interacting with the different winds and the pressure levels and all of that. And you can actually see what these things cape or decape or whatever looks like if you're like raising a parcel of air. It was really cool to me when I finally like figured out what that was, you know? Yeah. And you know, when you take calculus for the first time, uh, that you'll say something like, well, integration is finding the area under a curve. Yeah. And you go, that's stupid. Why would anybody ever want to find the area under an arbitrary curve? And then you look at something like a skew T diagram and they say, we're going to shade the area under this curve and that represents Cape. Now we're going to calculate it. And you're like, Oh, Oh, exactly. (laughs) Like I could make a million little boxes in here and count them. And then I come up with this number or I could integrate and look. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And so maybe that would be a good show to talk about the skew T log P and it's, uh, companions the tephagram and the stuvi diagram oh man as long as you know i talk about hodographs <laughs> uh, i think we've done that yeah that's true super weird um <laughs> yeah so all these words that we just threw out <laughs> are those measurements that we're trying to look at as forecasters to figure out whether a storm is going to spit out this downburst that could be potentially damaging especially if you're in an airplane near there um, and these things are super cool. And if you look at, you can just Google pictures of downburst or microburst, and you can just visualize with these clouds, if you have a wet microburst, you know, what fluid dynamics, why we say air acts as a fluid. Yeah. Cause when the, the downburst hits the ground, it spreads out and makes these little curly feet elf shoe looking yes. things. <laughs> Like exactly like you would imagine. If you imagine turbulence, like that's what I picture is what happens when this air hits the ground. It makes these little eddies. I guess you can see it in dry microbursts too. And maybe we should define the difference between the two. Yeah. So wet and dry microbursts, their names do a pretty good job. Yeah. (laughs) So the wet microburst, it's definitely got dry air entrainment that at least gets things started. But our friend water loading helps. So as you get this mass of water that's moving downward, it has some inertia and it experiences acceleration and that helps increase the speed. And when it hits the ground, it is precipitation. Right. Uh, So the dry microburst is pretty much solely driven by dry air entrainment. Uh, So there's no precipitation hitting the ground. It's all evaporating before it gets to the ground, helping feed this positive feedback loop. And that creates this thing called Virga. Yeah. And so this is one of my favorite meteorology terms to uh, teach geologists, mostly because geologists see it all the time, especially if you're working out west. Um, you'll see Virga constantly. And it's those little streaks that come from underneath clouds. And it's precipitation that doesn't make it to the ground. You've got really high-based you know, storms or rain clouds. It doesn't have to be a thunderstorm. And these little streaks coming down out of it, and it is rain, but it just is evaporating before it gets there, which is, you know, cooling the air around it, and then you're still forcing that air downwards, and you can create these dry microbursts that way. Yeah. Um, I really think these are cool. <laughs> you can see those little feet in the clouds of the wet microburst, or um, if you see, like, these big rain curtains and kind of this one side of the curtain is going more tangential to the ground you know that's kind of microburst or downburst 
wins, but you can get these curlicues and dry marker bursts too by kicking up like sand and dust and insects, and that looks really neat. Oh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I remember the first time I saw this in in real life. It's super neat to see. <laughs> Have you been in a wet microburst? No, I've not been in one. I have, okay. I have seen them from a comfortable distance while storm chasing. Right. And those are super neat. And you're like, oh, look, there's a microburst. And you can go on and talk about the cloud profile and all this jazz to the people that are with you. And that's cool until you're inside a wet microburst. <laughs> because it was, I don't know, maybe three years ago. We had a pretty good storm coming at us. And obviously, I'm watching it and nerding out. And I'm looking out my back windows, you know, big plate glass doors and I'm looking and I'm like what is that (laughs) and you could literally see this wall like it was already (laughs) raining like it was already really raining and really windy and you could just see this like white wall and like what is happening and we lost three trees (laughs) and this wet microburst hit us it was unbelievable (laughs) yeah wow yeah my dogs were in the closet my kid was He's like, we're dead. We're dead. <laughs> and it does. It snapped three of our trees off. And it was just crazy. Um, how can you tell the difference in the aftermath of some of these storms? Because, man, that was a really, really HP storm. And so some people would say, was it a rain-wrapped tornado? Was it a microburst? But actually, the way those winds hit the ground and the aftermath of what they do is how you can tell the difference at least afterwards. There's some radar ways you tell the difference too, but we'll get to that. Yeah, I mean, it makes sort of a bomb-like pattern. Right, exactly. So a tornado, I mean, you can see like the circular movement of a tornado, but that's just exactly it. It's in a circular movement. But uh, downburst has an outward movement. So it looks like a bomb went off and like all the trees or fences in this case (laughs) too will be, you know, all radiating out from a central point. Hmm. Yeah. And, so. and, you know, so looking at the, the list of uh, damage caused by microbursts, mm-hmm. there are a few, I mean, you know, there's a long list of aircraft accidents. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the Goodyear blimp, I think everybody might remember that crashing a little over 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a microburst. Uh, also, earlier this year in Texas, there was a, a crane collapse. Oh, yeah. That was actually caused by a wet microburst as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the difference between micro and macro, this is all um, Ted Fujita and Roger Wakamoto did a lot of this as they did lots of meteorology and defined these things. Um, and these little microbursts are, what do they say, four kilometers in diameter or less. So it's still a pretty big area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so lots of damage and lots of, and that was my job. Uh, when I first started at the National Severe Storms Laboratory, was to look up plane accidents and see if it was raining (laughs) when those accidents occurred. (laughs) And then I would go and pull the radar data to see if there was potential microburst situation for us to test our algorithms on. And I thought, I'm never flying again. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, I hadn't flown much by then anyway, but uh, yeah, that was terrifying. So what are some of the telltale signs on a radar? Uh, so if you watch, I mean, now 
this would be a different conversation five years ago or even 10 years ago. But now even TV weather stations have their own algorithms. And you might be, if you're not a super weather weenie, if you're here for the geology, I'm sorry, but um, <laughs> you'll see those little spinny circles. And those are the algorithm that says, oh, we have a mesocyclone or the storm is spinning. And what you do is you look at not the reflectivity, not the thing they usually show, but sometimes the meteorologists will flip to the velocity um, scans. And what they're looking for are, as you go out from the radar, all the data is taken, you know, and they're in little, the, they look like pixels and they call them bins or gates. And they look at those little bins and say, okay, I'm standing here. This bin is going away from me. The wind's going away from me. And the bin right next to it is going towards me. So that indicates rotation, right? If you got something that laterally is going one way, you move over a little bit and it's going the opposite way. That's a rotation. So great. That's a mesocyclone. Anyone in the middle of the country should be familiar with that. They see it all the time. So the algorithm right. that I worked on, you imagine a radar and it's scanning outwards and it's scanning, you know, it's single straight lines in 360 degree arc. Along those lines, you'll see, as you're going straight out from the radar along the line, you'll see, oh, here's some wind coming towards me. And then directly beyond that is wind going away from me. And that's what we were looking for to say, oh, that's a microburst, not an actual rotation of a mesocyclone. So you were still looking for a couplet, just a different... 90-degree rotating couplet. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, ex yeah, that's exactly right. And so, I mean, it's sometimes it's really hard to do. Um, just depends on where the storm is in relation to the radar and all that jazz, which is the same for any algorithm. Um, but yeah, so that was the couplet that we were looking for, was an along the same radial couplet. And that's the telltale sign of a microburst. Hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So kind of the same thing. Um, there's obviously, just like with every algorithm, you know, there's a lot of false alarms. That was my joke earlier. Of, I hope it's gotten better. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but um, any alarm at all is good, especially if you're working. I can't imagine, you know, doing air traffic control at a very busy airport to have these these little things come up and be like, hey, maybe you don't want to have anyone over in this area just in case. I know like around Denver, they have a sort of a mini version of the Oklahoma mesonet, mm -hmm. very densely spaced anemometers to try to see signatures of intense ground winds right. in time to shut down operations in a certain area. I was always surprised living in Denver, um, how windy it was. I mean, the, the mountains cause, I mean, I know what orographic lift is and all that jazz, but the mountains create a special set of terribleness when it comes to forecasting oh yes <laughs> <laughs> like it's real bad and especially you know you also get these dry microbursts out there a lot so it's not like you can see the rain shaft to be like oh look at that shape don't fly over there right so yeah, yeah. they're they're bad news but it, it's just interesting and a lot of times so the one of the things that i looked at which is something that we just talked about too was i looked at the phoenix radar because they very frequently, these little short-lived, single-celled, we call them pulse thunderstorms, you know, they just suck up stuff and then blow themselves out. And 
frequently they blow themselves out by producing a microburst. And so it's like the dying part of the cell is this big gust of wind that's frequently a microburst. And so these little pulse thunderstorms that were happening during the monsoon season in Arizona, you know, these microbursts were everywhere and they were tiny. These storms are sometimes really small, but you know, you need to know if one of those is going to blow itself out in this violent manner, as opposed to just petering out like other ones would. Um, so that was where we focused it. So they're really frequent out there if you're in that area in the monsoon season. Yeah, and I mean, there's a big difference between just gusting out and bringing the entire storm down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On you in a violent way. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. My, my kids were just playing with this little thing that we have, and it's kind of like a little semicircle, you know, and you pop it inside out and then set it upside down, and it'll eventually pop itself up into the air. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I just imagined. You know, those little thunderstorms that produce the microburst. It's just like pushing them out through their innards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. <laughs> so not all of them do it. Some of them do it. You got to have the perfect storm, <laughs> literally, of weather conditions um, to create these downbursts. But don't be fooled by the size of the thunderstorm because you can still get 100 kilometer winds or 100 mile per hour winds coming out of these things. Oh, yes. So... Th- I think would say they're maybe even more dangerous than tornadoes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because a tornado, you know it's coming. Yeah. You at least know that there's a supercell and the chance of a tornado is possible. Right. But I feel like these are, you know, all this stuff is happening so internally that it's not easy to sense and it can happen in these tiny storms. And so, yeah. Scary. Yeah, and the the dry microbursts, like you said, are more common out towards the west. Uh, microbursts in general are predominant east of the Rockies, just because there are more storms here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you get down into the the Midwest, it's sort of a, more of a mix, and then the southeast is largely wet microbursts because there's just so much humidity. Right. Yeah, you've always got juiciness going on out there, um, and these are not to be confused with heat bursts. Which is a no, not show. at all. Yeah. <laughs> In <laughs> fact, that was what when you said microburst, I said, "Oh yeah, or heat burst, either one." <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just it's kind of a cool thing, a little subset of meteorology that probably not a lot of people think about, but probably should, because, like we said, they're just as damaging as other types of storms, um, and especially if you're interested in aviation, that's cool that you guys pulled that in intro meteorology because i don't remember talking about downburst hardly at all everyone just wanted to talk about tornadoes <laughs> well you know one of our professors that we both had uh was an expert witness on several aircraft accidents mm-hmm. yeah and so i was able to to use some of his resources that's awesome and get this data yeah it was super scary looking at the accelerations that the airframe experienced and watching like 150 feet of altitude go away in oh. you know, three, 300 milliseconds. Oh, my God. Uh, secure your mask first. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and airplanes can recover from this in the air. The, the A lot of the damage happens while airplanes are taking off or landing in these conditions. And they basically encounter the ground prematurely. 
Right. Just because when you're taking off your landing, you don't have the altitude to play with to get that airspeed back to regain that altitude. Right. Exactly. Uh, I mean, you could be forced into the ground before you have any chance to do anything. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is a lot of, you know, that's why the FAA is obviously interested in funding, you know, the algorithm development for this. Because, yeah, that's a lot of... A lot of lives that could potentially be impacted but also a lot of money and time down when you have a crash yeah. like that so well i mean you know wings work by air flowing over them not onto them from <laughs> above yeah or storms puking them into the ground yes <laughs> yeah so microbursts uh yeah i think that's really about all there is to the physics uh, but i don't know that we'll ever get really great at predicting them until we have denser measurements uh, right. Yeah, exactly. They're just too small, hard to get at. Um, it's hard to, and it's, some of the storms are such a small time scale too. Like you're talking about, it's kind of hard to measure on that. You don't have a lot of lead up time to it, even less so than a tornado. So we do our best and I'm sure we're getting better all the time at it. Well, and with a traditional scanning radar, depending on what VCP or volume oh, coverage yeah. pattern you're in, I mean, there's a good chance that you'll totally miss it because you're not looking at the right altitude at the right direction when the microburst happened. Yep. Absolutely. Correct. Luckily we're getting away from that. Um, and so we should be making leaps and bounds in prediction of these things, or at least understanding of them. Absolutely. But I think it's time to go on to something completely different, Ah, but just as scary. So that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Uh, uh, I don't even want to talk about this. I'm just going to let you do it. (laughs) Oh, I also want to mention I'm having to rotate my cowbells because we have such awesome listeners. Now I've got several different cowbells. Uh, uh, Oh, that's great. I know. We're going to have to put Um, yours back in rotation too. Yeah, we definitely are. The problem is I... Yeah, my recording studio is right below my daughter's bedroom, so she's usually in bed. (laughs) If we record during the day anytime, I'll whip all mine out. All right. (laughs) Yeah, so this paper comes from listener Glenn. (laughs) And uh, he says this is another terror bird, and he loves the moniker. (laughs) I agree. Uh, So the the article is by Worthy et al. uh, from August of this year. Evidence for a giant parrot from the early Miocene of New Zealand. Uh, and the moniker isn't giant parrot, but Squawkzilla. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a real, I don't know. I both love and hate birds. I'm real obsessed with these terror birds. But also, I used to watch <laughs> a lot of parrots um, I was a pet sitter after I got three degrees because, you know, I didn't want to science anymore. (laughs) And I had some experience with large birds and people are so scared of them that I always had to go watch the large birds. I'm also scared of them, (laughs) but I guess I just come across as not. So like parrots, like, like big macaws, I don't know, like the big blue and red birds that most people call parrots or macaws, those things are huge and they're terrifying (laughs) i used to pet sit this one and he would walk around on the floor and it's like he came up to you know almost my knee and that's scary that's a big bird right this thing was the size of a (laughs) four-year-old 
Yeah, so feet tall. <laughs> yes, I can't even. That was a long preamble, but I really need you to understand the depth of my fear <laughs> of these big birds because they're beaks. They could just break your finger with them. I've seen one like bite into a walnut like it was a piece of sushi or something. <laughs> I can't imagine what a four foot tall parrot could do to you. Yeah, so these things, uh, they think, weighed about 15 pounds. Oh, my God. So that's, you know, one and a half of my dog. <laughs> oh. Uh, uh, and it could eat your dog super easy. <laughs> yeah, and the craziest thing about this is this article came out this year. The fossils were actually dug up in 2008, and the scientists <laughs> looked at them and said, giant eagle. <laughs> and it got filed away ah, i love it oh i love stories like this the stories like this are what make science are these things that are like someone came across these and this is exactly what happened was a grad student was looking for giant eagles and said this doesn't look right well i love the wording of the article it said it realized that it did not fit the bill <laughs> i totally missed that that's good <laughs> Well played, Washington Post. Well played. <laughs> yeah, so they started looking more closely at this and realized that it was most closely related uh, to a parrot. And so they reconstructed uh, sort of what they thought its size was from what I would call the drumstick on a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. the thigh bone, yeah. And they decided that this probably was actually too large of a bird to fly, but that didn't really matter because it could reach what it wanted. Yeah, my God. Um, I love when they're talking about narrowing it down. They says, by elimination, we concluded that there was nothing left to compare it to. It had all the features of a parrot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so they go on. There's a terrifying picture in the Washington Post article, too of these alpine parrots in New Zealand, and the fossils were found in New Zealand. Um, So New Zealand has these alpine parrots, and it said that some of these birds will eat sheep that get, like, stuck in the mud. They'll start eating them while they're sitting there alive. Yeah, and this is not a parrot that you look at, and you're like, oh, that's a cute bird. No, (laughs) no. (laughs) This is a mud-colored bird with a giant hooked beak, that looks very angry that eats sheep that gets stuck in the mud (laughs) (laughs) this is insanity this is where if you don't think dinosaurs are birds now you haven't spent any time with birds (laughs) right and unfortunately on this particular bird they didn't get the beak yeah Uh, so they said that maybe with future finds they'll be able to narrow down more whether this squawkzilla uh, <laughs> primarily ate nuts, seeds, that kind of thing, or whether it primarily ate other smaller birds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would freak out if I found a fossilized beak of a four-foot parrot. <laughs> I'd just be like, no, I'm done. I'm going into the humanities. I'm over this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is awesome. Um, I haven't pulled the article yet, but I can't wait to see the follow-up of all the, you know, awesome scientific drawings of Squawkzilla. Yeah, and unfortunately, the article is behind a paywall. I haven't found an open access version of it. Yeah, that's true. But 
definitely if there's good art that comes out of it, it's going to be all over the place. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, uh, <laughs> these probably ceased to be a species on our planet about 16 million years ago. Right. So these guys are around in the Miocene. I'm definitely adding it to the, um, definitely adding it to the terror bird lecture that I give. I'm super yeah. excited. <laughs> So thanks, Glenn, for fueling my nightmares for the next week or so. <laughs> yeah, that was an awesome, fun paper. If you have found any fossils that you think might be the beak of Squawkzilla <laughs> or have your own aviary studies that you would like to share with us, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Don't send those to me. Send them to John. Uh, <laughs> send everything <laughs> else to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Together we are at Don't Panic Geo. Um, check us out on the Slack chat room, the Don't Panic channel of the Software Underground. Um, and as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going. If you'd like a sticker or would like to support us on Patreon, drop us a line. And you can go to patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo to do that. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our